Again, I invite you to Jeremiah chapter 46, Jeremiah 46, uh, this evening and next Lord's Day evening, we will uh, conclude our study in Jeremiah. So we're looking at 46 through the end of 49, uh, just read chapter 46 as we make a beginning, but keep your, your Bible open that we might refer to it again. So this evening, Jeremiah 46, beginning at verse 1. The reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. About Egypt. Concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Prepare buckler and shield and advance for battle. Harness the horses, mount, O horsemen. Take your stations with your helmets, polish your spears, put on your armor. Why have I seen it? They are dismayed and have turned backward. Their warriors are beaten down and have fled in haste. They look not back, terror on every side, declares the Lord. The swift cannot flee away, nor the warrior escape. In the north, by the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. Who is this rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. Advance, O horses, enrage, O chariots. Let the warriors go out, men of Cush, and put your handle the shield, men of Lud, skilled in handling the bow. That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its full of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain you have used many medicines. There is no healing for you. The nations have heard of your shame, and the earth is full of your cry. For warrior has stumbled against warrior. They have both fallen together. The word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to strike the land of Egypt. Declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdol, proclaim in Memphis and Taphanes. Say, stand ready and be prepared, for the sword shall devour around you. Why are your mighty ones face down? They do not stand because the Lord thrusts them down. He made many stumble and they fell. And they said to one another, arise and let us go back to our own people and to the land of our birth because of the sword of the oppressor. Call the name of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, noisy one who lets the hour go by. As I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, like Tabor among the mountains and like Carmel by the sea shall one come. Prepare yourself, baggage for exile, O inhabitants of Egypt, for Memphis shall become a waste, a ruin without inhabitant. A beautiful heifer is Egypt, but a biting fly from the north has come upon her. Even her hired soldiers in her midst are like fattened calves. Yes, they have turned and fled together. They did not stand, for the day of their calamity has come upon them, the time of their punishment. She makes a sound like a serpent gliding away, for her enemies march in force and come against her with axes like those who fell trees. They shall cut down her forest, declares the Lord, though it is impenetrable, because they are more numerous than locusts. They are without number. The daughter of Egypt shall be put to shame. She shall be delivered into the hand of a people from the north. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, said, Behold, I am bringing punishment upon Ammon of Thebes, and Pharaoh and Egypt and their gods and their kings upon Pharaoh and those who trust in him. 
I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their life, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. Afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. But fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask your blessing upon this history that is our history. May we learn its lessons well, and may we seek guidance from the Spirit of our God to walk with you faithfully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What is it about the Christmas message that stands out to you the most? Is there some aspect of it, maybe something that folks would consider a minor point, but that you find particularly fascinating? How about this? In the depths of the Christmas message, we see the exchange of divinity and humanity, an exchange of that which is eternal to that which is temporary. And in all of this, we see that God is the master of time and the master of nations. Now, I realize that does not strike you as odd. You think, well, of course that's the case. But have you really thought about it much? Our God, our Father is the author of time. And because he is intimately involved in and with time, he then is the mover of peoples, the mover of entire nations. When thinking of God entering to time, a question or the question is not, how can a virgin bear a child? That's an important question. But a, no, another question, or maybe even we'd say a wonder, is that the eternal one, who can be neither created nor destroyed, willingly becomes subject to both birth and death. Think about this. The eternal Son of God was free from time and space, but then becomes fully obedient to the demands of time and space. We just assume that time unfolds, and there's really nothing to be done about it. There's no rhyme nor reason to it. Or as the well-known Christmas song puts it, I'll be home for Christmas if the fates allow. But we are Christians, and we view most everything differently. We view time differently. For example, we know that time is unfolding in the present according to the future. That is to say that God has an end in mind, and everything is moving toward that end. And it is moving toward that end exactly as it is supposed to move. We hear around Christmas things like, well, Jesus was God's intervention into time. We have to be careful. When we speak that way, we might give the idea that God was inactive in history before this, inactive in time, and only became interested when drastic action became necessary. But we know that that is incorrect. What we are to see is a contrast, not between a God who is here and a God who is absent, but between the work of God that is sometimes obvious and sometimes quite hidden from us. Therefore, we know that time is simply the theater in which God is working out his story 
And we therefore recognize that God is the author of the billions and billions of sub-stories that make up the big story. And he is the author of every single one of those stories, including yours and mine. Each of these stories have twists and turns and trials, known and unknown realities. As Christians, we know this is to be expected because we know that there is a plot. And if there is a plot, then there is a master behind it all. Caesar Augustus orders a census to be taken. He doesn't know that he is merely following the story that the Father has written in eternity past. Caesar is doing this for his own reasons. God is orchestrating the story for something else. But what I want to draw your attention to is all of the people this affected. All of the people who had to make their way back to their hometowns to be counted. Thousands and thousands of people were made to take a journey whether they wanted to take it or not. This did not only affect Mary and Joseph, although that is the focal point of the biblical narrative. Did you ever think that God was intimately involved with every single person that had to make a journey to their hometown? He knew exactly what he was doing in every single life that had to make that journey. And all of that so that Mary and Joseph would get to Bethlehem. As Christians, we look at all of the the mini-stories of literally everyone and see them as connected. It's all connected to the story that time is preaching. Please understand, I am not saying that we understand or see all the connections, at least not yet. We just know that there are no accidents and that every last bit of this is all being orchestrated by a divine hand for a divine purpose. And not just the big things, but all things. We know, even though at times we lose sight of the truth, that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. I say we know that, but we often don't live as though we know it. We live as though we have quite forgotten it. We panic. We fret. We get angry. We pick up bitternesses. But I read something that I have to admit I hadn't thought about in a long time. Listen to this. If all things work together for good for them that love God and are called according to his purpose, then this means that billions of plot lines are going to come together in the most satisfying, cathartic release possible at the end of all time. In other words, the billions and billions of stories that the Lord has orchestrated from the beginning of the world, all running off in in myriads of directions, will on the great day, every last one of them come together. Every single story of every single person concludes at the exact same point. They coalesce, they culminate, they conclude at this one point in time when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. No one in the world thinks that all of this All of time is about one thing. No one thinks there will be this collision where everything that has ever happened in time culminates. And yet it does. At Bethlehem is where all of this begins to make sense. Where we begin to see what time is all about. The great 
irony of God intruding himself into time so that he might bring it to this glorious conclusion to the glory of the one who lies in Bethlehem's manger. Listen to this author. The consummate writer, God foreshadows what he is going to do. In fact, he was doing that from the earliest prophets on. But at Bethlehem, the central character arrives in the story and those following the story recognize him. Those who recognize him this way are called believers. And as the story unfolds, there will be more and more of us. At the end, not only will everyone see who he is, but we will also see all that he has been doing all along. And we shall see that history, far from being a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing as Shakespeare put in the mouth of Hamlet, is actually the ultimate ironic tale. Christ as the Word is the irony of time. He is the irony of the story. In worshiping Christ, in worshiping the Word, Christians are worshiping the irony of God. In the section we read this evening from Jeremiah, we find the Lord's judgments being proclaimed against a number of nations who were involved in differing ways in the story of God's covenant people. Four chapters that tell us nothing but judgment upon different nations and the reasons for that judgment. But two things to remember. First is that the world and everything in it is God's. The nations are His. And everyone owes God reverence, loyalty, and service. Everyone. Every nation. God's plan announced to Abraham had the world in view. Blessings to the nations. Second, listen for strands of hope when you read of the nations in the Old Testament, even in the announcements of judgment. In the book of the Revelation, we find all the nations of the world coming together to worship the Lamb of God, men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation. God will judge. That's what these chapters are about. But even in judgment, if you read carefully, there is mercy to be found. This is the plan for time. And God is in absolute control, not just of the end, but of the movement of time and the rising and falling of the nations of the world. And again, all of that is going to culminate in the very same place, literally, all of it, at the throne of God and His Christ. In the section we read, Egypt is the first to be mentioned, and Egypt is to be judged for her pride. You see in verse 8 how she thought she could flood the world with her imperial power as the Nile uh, floods the fields. In verse 14 and following, the prophecy almost seems like a taunt song. Contrast the king of Egypt with the king whose name is the Lord Almighty, verse 18. And of course, as is Jeremiah's way, he uses colorful imagery to make the point. Egypt is described as a stung heifer a herd of stampeding calves, a hissing snake slithering away from danger, a forest being chopped down. But the point of all of this is seen in verses 25 and 26. God is setting himself against the hubris of Egypt, the self-exaltation of man and the gods man has created. But at the end of verse 26, there is a there is a quick quip of hope given, even with regard to Egypt. What Jeremiah barely mentions, Isaiah says with much greater enthusiasm and more words. You can read this in Isaiah 41, 43, and 44. 
Because there the prophet likens the future of Egypt to the future of Israel. The promise of hope and a place in the kingdom of God's Messiah is held out not just for Israel, but for the nations of the world. Even those nations who were God's enemies. Now think of that. God has a future even for many who were his enemies. Now what does that make you think? Any verse say in the New Testament? In the book of Romans? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You were an enemy of God. And God took you, an enemy, and he made you his friend, even his child. So God having a plan for enemies, well, it really isn't that odd, is it? If you have your Bible open, you'll look and see the Philistines are next. And whereas Jeremiah doesn't mention the reason for judgment, more than likely he is assuming the obvious. The Philistines, we read about them all over the Old Testament history, warring against God's people. Jeremiah brings no mention of hope. But interestingly, in a remarkable passage at the end of Zechariah, the Philistines are actually mentioned as being cleansed and incorporated into Israel as one of the clans of Judah. So even the Philistines, the enemies of God, they too have a future of hope because the Messiah is the Messiah for the whole world. Well, let's look at Moab, and that's in chapter 48. Let me make a beginning, the first 11 verses here in chapter 48. Concerning Moab, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Woe to Nebo, for it is laid waste. Kirathiam is put to shame, it is taken. The fortress is put to shame and broken down. The renown of Moab is no more. In Heshbon they plan disaster against her. Come, let us cut her off from being a nation. You also, O madmen, shall be brought to silence. The sword shall pursue you. A voice... A cry from Honoraim, desolation and great destruction. Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have made a cry. For at the ascent of Luhith, they go up weeping. And at the descent of Horonaim, for they have heard the distressed cry of destruction. Flee, save yourself. You will be like a juniper in the desert. For because you trusted in your works and your treasures, you also shall be taken. And Chemosh shall go into exile with his priests and his officials. The destroyer shall come up on every city, and no city shall escape. The valley shall perish, and the plain shall be destroyed, as the Lord has spoken. Give wings to Moab, for she would fly away. Her city shall become a desolation with no inhabitant in them. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord with slackness, and cursed is he who keeps back his sword from bloodshed. Moab has been at ease from his youth, and has settled on his dregs, He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile, so his taste remains in him, and his scent is not changed. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send when I shall send to him pourers who will pour him, and empty his vessels, and break his jars in pieces. Then Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh, as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. Moab was uh, Judah's closest neighbor. You could actually stand at the Jordan Rift Valley and look into Moab. Moab is characterized by pride and complacency. 
They trusted in their god, Chemosh, and boasted of their military, verse 14, their fame, verse 17, and just an overall national arrogance, as we read in 29 and 30. But the interesting thing about chapter 48 is that in the midst of God's judgment, we find a tone of mourning and lament. Now, of course, you would expect the people of Moab to be mourning. That's not so surprising. We do also find a summons for Israel to weep and mourn for the agonies of their neighbors. That's in verse 17 and 20. So Moab weeps at her destruction. Israel is told, yes, they are your enemies, but you shall weep at their destruction nonetheless. But even more shocking is that three times in the later part of the chapter, verses 31 and 32, Yahweh is said to mourn for Moab. In fact, there are four different words used for God's grief in this chapter. Now, we have grown used to seeing the grief of God concerning his covenant people. We have drawn attention to it at every step along the way in this study. But here the Lord weeps over the suffering of other nations, even rebellious nations who don't even pretend to acknowledge or respect Yahweh. What does this tell us about the character of God? What does this tell us about who he is? We affirm with Ezekiel that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, But we must also affirm with Jeremiah that not only does he take no pleasure in it, he actually mourns it. One commentator put it this way, The Godward side of wrath and judgment is grief. For God, internal grieving always accompanies wrath and judgment. The net effect is that God enters into a lament that is as deep and broad as the laments of the people, as with Israel, so with Moab. God has entered into judgment, but once the judgment has fallen or is anticipated, God then mourns with those who mourn. Now, I realize that the critics would say that if this is the case, then God being God should do something about suffering. If he is God, then he can fix the suffering. He should have an answer for it. If it bothers him so much, then why doesn't he do something? Oh, he did. He did something. Remember God's response to the suffering of mankind was to become suffering. To enter himself into the fullness of what sin deserves. God has been touched with sorrow. The sorrow we bring upon ourselves because of our rebellion. That is why we rightly say that Christ Jesus is the Savior of the world. That God so loved the world that his purpose is the restoration of the world. And once again, the last verse of the chapter attributes to Moab the promises of comfort and blessing that have been announced upon Israel. It is imperative that as we read or look out at our own world and we we see the rebellion and the, the mockery of our God and his Christ, that while we see what they all deserve, we also see, we must see, what we deserve because it is the same. That which makes the difference between the Moabites of an era long, long ago and you, the difference between the Moabites and those of us here this evening, the only difference is mercy. That's it. It is just that simple. All we can hope in 
is that God, the only true God, shows mercy to those who deserve none. And God is a God who delights in mercy. Chapter 49 chronicles the prophecies of judgment upon Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, or Arabia. There we find sin running amok. There is arrogance. There is the worship of Molech, the offering of children into the fire. But that which stands out, if you look there, is verse 11, where we read that the sin was their lack of compassion on the most vulnerable of their victims. They attacked the weakest and most vulnerable of those within Judah when Jerusalem fell to Nebuchadnezzar. And they would never be forgiven for that. The psalmist in Psalm 137 calls upon the Lord to remember what these Edomites did in attacking the weak and helpless. And again, we point this out that we might learn something of the very heart of God. The orphans, the widows, those who are vulnerable, weak and unable, these have a special place in the heart of our God. As you know, when Jesus tells a parable, one of the purposes of his teaching this way is to challenge his hearers to see themselves in the parable. Who do they think they are? Which of the characters in the story do they most see themselves as imitating or being like? Who do we think we are in the story? The Good Samaritan. Are you the priest or the Levite who passed by because you are busy with your religious duties? Are you the man who shows mercy? At the parable of the wedding feast and all the excuses given why folks cannot come, where are you? Where do you see yourself in the story? The prodigal son. Which of those boys, which of them are you? Or even in the actual events of redemptive history, are you the upstanding righteous Jew? Or are you the blind man, the deaf man, the lame man? We live our lives thinking that we are better than others. That we are not as fill-in-the-blank as they are. Oh, I know, we tell ourselves that we don't do that. But who are we kidding? You know you think that you are not as something as so-and-so. We have a hard time seeing, really coming to grips with the truth that apart from the Lord's mercy, we are nothing but self-absorbed people filled with sin and malevolence. And yet, (laughs) that is who the Lord casts his love upon. Those who know they are too lame to stand and leap for joy. Those who know they are too deaf to hear the whispers of the Spirit. Those who are too blind to see the light of truth right in front of us. We were dead and needed life breathed into us. That is what God does and that is who God loves. That is who God saves. His heart bleeds and his ear is bent to the vulnerable, the lost, those who cannot. And so should we be. And as God orchestrates time, as God controls nations, he continues to write the great storylines of the world as well as the storylines that make up your life. He brings you day after day all you need that you might love, serve, and sacrifice yourself for him and for those he loves. So, how are you doing? The Eucharist displays both the weakness and vulnerability of God as well as the victory of God. 
Jesus embraced vulnerability, took hold of weakness and humiliation. He became like those that he had come to save for the purpose of rescue. But in and through the humiliation came exaltation, death, and then resurrection, laying down life to be raised up in the perfection of holiness. It's easy when celebrating the Eucharist as often as we do to forget these things. So I encourage you, do not forget them. Do not allow your children to forget them. Even this evening, as you eat and drink, talk to them. Remind them. Remind yourself that in eating and drinking, you are praising the Savior for what He did, and you are vowing to do likewise. You are giving yourself to the ways, the pattern that Jesus set for us. Vulnerability, weakness, love, sacrifice, and mercy. And think of this. Everywhere in the world, in every nation of the world, whereas the worship of the Lord Jesus might look very, very different, and it does, many different expressions of worship to the triune God. Everywhere you go, however, you will find this. Everywhere in the world, there will be the breaking of bread and the pouring of wine. In every nation, you find followers of Jesus gathered around bread and wine. Why is that? Because God so loved the world. Our gracious Father, as we come to you this evening, again with our hands out to receive the Christ by faith, give us eyes to see what is unseen. And may we, Father, in taking Christ, may we become more like him. We become like what we worship. Father, we worship you in spirit and truth that we might become like you, that we might live as your sons and daughters with boldness, with extravagance, proclaiming the glories of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, give us this this evening as we partake again, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.